So I can tell you with certainty you made a good choice in being here tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. Because, well, for a lot of reasons, you know, prayerfully because the Lord is doing things in your heart and for you and, and, and staying alive before you. But uh, the other reason is, I had planned to teach through chapter 16 tonight and then come back and deal with a little bit more on Sunday. And the Sunday crowd's going to miss a little bit more because we're just going to do it all tonight. We're going to finish Samson's story tonight. Um, and then we'll be moving right along into the next part of the book of Judges, which is very interesting because after Samson, he is the last of the judges in the book. Chapter 17 through 21 after that take us into a couple or three stories that really show us how bad it was in Israel during this 400-year period. The stories don't necessarily come after the time of Samson, but they, they happen during the time of the judges in Israel. And you'll hear this line several times over the next couple of weeks. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. And what the writer of the book of Judges, probably Samuel, is doing with the last few chapters is giving us that picture. He's showing us what it looks like when people do what's right in their own eyes. So far we've seen the judges doing the best that they could do to follow the Lord. Some doing a little better than others. Some doing more what was right in their own eyes as we've seen with Samson. Here is a man who did what was right in his own eyes. Remember, his eyes were his problem. He had a lust problem. A he-man with a she-weakness. He was after the women. This was what he lusted for. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So right off the bat, John lays out for us three things that are not from the Father. The lust of the flesh. That is the things that pleasure the flesh. The, the lust of the eyes. Things that draw our attention to areas we shouldn't go. And the boastful pride of life. So far we've seen Samson walking in the flesh. The lust of the flesh. We've seen him using the lust of his eyes. But now in the last chapter of his life, we see the boastful pride of life. Part three, if you will, of, of Samson's living. Samson's starting to get the picture. I'm pretty strong. I can do some amazing things. In chapter 15, Samson realized, I just killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Hasn't been done before. This same Samson, back in chapter 14 and 15, leading 14, I think it was, um, tore apart a roaring lion with his bare hands. He's starting to get it up here. I got some power. And he's pretty proud of himself for that. It's interesting to watch Samson's story because it comes to a tragic but redemptive conclusion. Before we get there, I want to pray one more time and just ask, Father, would your spirit be our teacher? As, as many have already praised you for tonight, we praise you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that you give to us who resides within us. Jesus, you said, it, it, for anyone, if we will trust in you, believe in you, love you, if we will abide in you, you will abide in us, that you and your Father, you would come and make your home in us. <laughs> what an amazing thought. Father, the creator of the universe, making a home in my heart. And we thank you. 
We praise you for the wonder of who you are and, and for your magnificent plan. A plan, Father, that the more we think about it, the more amazed and blown away we are. But a plan, Father, also that is so simple that a child can step into faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the most simple story and yet the most powerful in all our history. We thank you, Lord, for and praise you for your grandeur, but we praise you also for your your spirit who you give to us to teach us, to guide us, to lead us, to open up and explain your word to us in ways we understand. And we thank you again, Father, for your word that is so clear and so literal and so true. And we pray that you will give us the will, Father, to follow your word. And not to do what is right in our own eyes, but Lord, to do what is right in your word before us. Father, we pray you'll give us insight into your word and your heart tonight in Jesus' name. And by your spirit we pray. Amen. The boastful pride of life. Well, it all begins in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went in to her. Ah, Samson. When are you going to learn? Now, before we get to the harlot, there's not a whole lot to say about the harlot. She gets one verse in the Bible. We know that he goes into her. But, But even before we get there, in those first few words, we're told he went to Gaza. Now that is the self-same Gaza as the Gaza we see in the news today, the Gaza Strip. The Gaza that is just exploding in civil war that Hamas, the terrorist organization, now has control of. But in those days it was Philistine territory, not Palestinian territory. Philistine territory. And the Gazaites were those Philistines who lived down there in Gaza. And, And Samson heads down there. It was a beach city. It's one of the primary coastal strongholds in the heart of Philistine country. There were three cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza that were right there in southern Israel along the Mediterranean Sea in the southern part of the land and that was where Gaza was and that was where the Philistines landed. You may recall, we've talked about the Philistines, they were a maritime people. They sailed from Crete across the Aegean Sea, across the Mediterranean and made their home there in the southern part of the Promised Land. They were outsiders. They were not Arabic. They were not Middle Eastern. They were outsiders who made their way into the land. And they were a sworn enemy of Israel. That's, that's where the Palestinian name comes from. Some of your Bible students are aware of this. But the name Palestinian comes from the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who when driving the Jews out of the land in about 110, 135, somewhere in there, uh, A.D., he, he said, we're going to change the name of this place. It's not going to be Israel or Judea anymore. We're going to now call it Philistine land. But being Latin, he couldn't say Philistine. He said Palestine. Palestinia, Philistine land. And that's where the name Palestine came from in the first place. And then, of course, Yasser Arafat co-opted it in the mid to late 60s after the massacre in Munich, which I was just watching something on today. bunch of history there. But the Philistines were there, and they spread out in this lower region of the land, and Samson's going down to Gaza. It's the furthest city south of the Philistines. It is deep in the heart of enemy territory. And I have to ask the question, Samson, why are you going there? This is not like earlier in the story when he went down to Timnah and saw a woman and wanted to take her for his wife. And then the Bible tells us, this is chapter 14, verse 4, tells us that the Lord had his own intentions. God was doing something else. Samson went down and saw a woman, but God was bringing Samson into the land of the Philistines to begin to stir things up. 
Because God wanted the Philistines driven out. So he had his own purpose. This is not so at this point. Samson going into Gaza is not a godly move at all. That's nothing to do with the plans of the Lord at this point. Samson is just going deeper and deeper and deeper into enemy territory. Going down to Gaza. I was thinking about this today, just looking at a map of Israel and looking at where Gaza was, and another place caught my eye, and I realized we haven't heard a lot about this other location since we started the book of Judges. The other location is Shiloh. Does anybody remember what at this time was located in Shiloh? The Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle, absolutely. That was, yeah, way to go. (laughs) High fives all around for Natalie. The tabernacle was in Shiloh. The tabernacle, now listen, the center of Israelite worship was in Shiloh. And we are now in chapter 16 of the book of Judges. How many times have we even heard the name Shiloh mentioned? We haven't. It's part of the problem right there. The people are not centered around Shiloh, around the tabernacle, which, by the way, you may recall, God called the tabernacle the tent of meeting. Because the Lord said, Exodus chapter 25, verse 21, He says, There I will meet with you. He's telling Moses how to put the Ark of the Covenant together. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the sixth piece of furniture that went into the tabernacle. The seventh was actually something that sat on top of the Ark, the mercy seat. And the Lord said this. He said, you'll put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you'll put the testimony which I will give you. And there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the sons of Israel. But for 400 years now, Shiloh and the tabernacle are conspicuously absent. And no wonder everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. No wonder the focus is completely lost. Everybody's spread out and going their own direction and even the judges are residing in their own hometowns and nobody's saying anything about Shiloh and the tabernacle. Shiloh. Shiloh means place of rest. Place of rest. The tabernacle there in Shiloh, Shiloh itself, both of these two things are pictures, as we have seen in previous studies, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can walk through the tabernacle, look at each piece of furniture, each of the seven pieces. You can look at the way the tabernacle was woven, the coverings on top of the tabernacle, the fencing that goes around the tabernacle, even the poles and the joints and the metals used for the building of the tabernacle, and you can see Jesus. And it's amazing. The Ark of the Covenant itself, built of acacia wood, speaking of the humanity of Jesus Christ, covered over by pure gold, speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's a fantastic study, and I encourage you to do that on your own time. But the tabernacle portrays Jesus. Shiloh is a picture of Jesus Christ. And we know this prophetically. Back in Genesis 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter, meaning rule and authority, will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. Unto him, not unto it, not unto this place called Shiloh, but unto this person called Shiloh. Shiloh means place of rest. And rabbis, even rabbis today, believe and teach that Shiloh is Messiah. As Christians, we understand that. Prophecy scholars, we look back and we say, yes, Shiloh, Shiloh is Jesus. And when Shiloh would come, that whole prophecy that that Jacob gave back in Genesis 49.10, it's a fantastic prophecy. And and historically, we know 
that it was at the time that Israel lost its final authority, which by the way was the death penalty. When Rome removed the death penalty from the hands of the leaders of Israel, from the Sanhedrin. And they wept over that. And they were upset by that. And it was at that time they were so upset because Shiloh hadn't come. And it said, and I can't prove this, but it said traditionally that on the very day that that pronouncement was made, and the rabbis and the priests and the leaders and the, and the chiefs of the people of Israel were wailing in the streets of Jerusalem, weeping because the scepter had departed and Shiloh had not come on that day, 12-year-old Jesus was in the temple. Shiloh did come. Shiloh is not only a place of rest, it is the person of rest. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Come to me if you're weary and you're heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Shiloh is Jesus, the place of rest. Interesting, Gaza, where Samson went, means the strong. I'm going to go down to the strong. Good place for the strong man, Samson. Great name for a city that would attract a man of might. I'm going to go to strong town. And there I'm going to show my strength. And he is cocky at this point. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Are you just reading into it? Well, I know that he went from his hometown down into Ashdod and then down into Ashkelon and then down into Gaza he is going deeper and deeper into Philistine territory and he's doing it because hey he's Samson I killed a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey I don't need much to take out more you guys want to mess with me? bring it on and so strong Samson heads down there hanging out in Gaza and I want to ask you tonight before we study any further where are you going? Are you going to Gaza or are you going to Shiloh? Are you resting in Gaza, strong town, resting on your own strength, resting on your own power, on your own intelligence, on your own ability in Gaza, or are you resting in Jesus Christ there at Shiloh? The choice is ours to make. And the reality is I think we kind of struggle and tug back and forth. We were talking to staff meeting this morning about the difference between the flesh and the spirit and the soul. And the soul kind of being our, our mind, our intellect, right there in the middle of our, of our spirit and our flesh. And we can be drawn to the spirit, the place of Shiloh, the place of rest and trust and peace in Jesus Christ. But we can also be as easily drawn to Gaza, the place of the strong, the place of my ability. Where are you going? Gaza or Shiloh? The tent of meeting is in Shiloh. The Lord says, I'll meet you in Shiloh. But I'm not going down to Gaza. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, Most gladly, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then what? I am strong. But I'm not strong because of me in Gaza. I am strong because of Jesus in Shiloh. I am strong because of the presence of Jesus in my life. The Hebrew writer says, What more shall I say? Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and listen, don't miss this, from weakness were made strong. That is the signature of Samson's life. That's why Samson is in this list in Hebrews chapter 11. Because in his weakness, he was made strong. In his weakness, he understood what it was all about. That's where he found his faith in the Lord. Not in his strength down in Gaza, but in his weakness, as we will see tonight. 
Gaza or Shiloh. The choice is ours. So the beach town of Gaza, it's enemy territory, pagan party central. And I think part of the reason that Samson went down to Gaza is he could get there what he probably couldn't get in Shiloh. And that's the last part of this verse. He saw a harlot there and went into her. A little more difficult to find a harlot hanging around the tabernacle. A little more difficult to find sin and temptation hanging around the fellowship of other believers too, isn't it? And so we will fool ourselves into thinking we're strong so that we can go down to Gaza because the soul and the flesh want to be there. Down in Gaza, the place of temptation, the place of the party. And that's where Samson headed. It's a downward spiral for him and you can actually map it out. As I mentioned before, you can start in chapter 14 and he goes to Timnah. Then you go to chapter 15 and it's further south to Ramoth Lehi. You can go to chapter 16 as he heads down to Gaza and his whole life is this spiral further and further into enemy territory. As he sends more and more and gets further and further away from his Nazarite vow which he made in the beginning which was what his life was supposed to be about. He reminds me of the opening verses of Psalms chapter 1 verse 1. I've shared this before, but it's such a powerful picture of how sin works against us and and, and in us in our lives. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So you're walking. Nor stand in the path of the sinners. Now I'm stopping. Nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. It's a progression. How blessed is the man who doesn't do those things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And Bible students, you know what that word law is there translated in the Hebrew? We've mentioned this recently. Torah. Torah. Torah law, which isn't just Leviticus. Yeah, another high five right over here. Well, it's not just Leviticus. It's not just Deuteronomy. It is Torah. Genesis through Deuteronomy. The first five books... And it is representative, gang. Whenever you see this word law or Torah, it is representative of the Word of God. The whole Word. And so when we read something like, His delight is in the law of the Lord, it's not just a guy sitting there poring over legal things. It's someone who says, When I open the book, I am delighted. When I read and I say, When I show up on a Wednesday night and we pull our Bibles out and start talking it through, it delights me. And it really does. Yeah, Cheryl. I mean, I get home and I could go another two hours. I know you probably like that, Spence. Come on over afterwards tonight. We'll keep going. (laughs) His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, what's amazing to me is Samson goes down into Gaza, saw a harlot there, went into her, but the Lord does not depart him yet. That amazes me. He is with a harlot, but the Bible doesn't tell us that the Spirit has departed. Not yet. It will. He will. But not yet. In verse 2 it says, When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here. Well, they surrounded the place, and they lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let's wait until the morning light, and then we will kill him. Obviously, they didn't hear about the thousand Philistines and the jawbone, but they're laying in wait. Samson, verse 3, lay until midnight. And at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars and he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain which is opposite Hebron. This is one of those little two verse stories of Samson's life that sometimes gets overlooked but it's absolutely amazing. 
At midnight, he wakes up, realizes that he's surrounded. He's got a little problem, so he figures, i got to get out of here. They've locked the city gate. What do I do? I just take it with me. <laughs> it's not a big problem. It's been estimated, gang, that, that that city gate that he put on his back and carried to the top of the mountain weighed two and a half tons. Those of you who work out, what's your best squat? <laughs> two and a half tons. Puts it on his back, off he goes, and he heads toward this place near Hebron. Now, Hebron's about 40 miles away. So it's probably not Hebron that he went to. In fact, the Bible tells us that he went to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. So it was probably the mountain range that you would have to cross to get to Hebron. And even that mountain range was four miles. So Samson puts on a little city gate backpack and hikes four miles to the top of a mountain and drops his load off there. And you can just imagine the Philistines who were lying in wait just going... What's funny is they don't attack. They're too amazed. They just leave him to it. Amazing. Verse 4 goes on. It says, After this, it came about that he loved a woman. Strike three. (laughs) He loved a woman. First it was the woman from Timnah. Now, second it was the harlot. Now we get to strike three. He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Delilah. Samson and Delilah is not a love story, uh, as some have tried to say. The Romeo and Juliet, Samson and Delilah, the great love stories. No, it's not a love story at all. It's a story of deceit and lies. It's a story of chicanery, trickery. That's what Delilah is all about. But it's interesting, he goes from the beach of Gaza into the valley of Sorek, like he goes now like to the valley, and so he meets like this valley girl, which is Delilah. Delilah's name, which is actually probably better pronounced Dalia or Dalila, her name means to weaken or make feeble. The significance of biblical names should never be missed. In fact, anytime you're studying a story, stop and say, what does this mean? What does this city mean? What's the name of this town? What is this person's name? So we have Samson, whose name means sunshine, sunny. He's down in Gaza, a strong town. Now he's come up. He's in the valley with Delilah, whose name is to weaken or make feeble, and that is her purpose in his life, to make him weak. That is what she sets herself to very quickly in the story. One other quick thing before going further here. He's moved to Sorek. Sorek is not in Israel, but it is a border town. It's right on the border of of Philistia and Israel. So Samson meets Delilah, the one who makes him weak and feeble, on the border. On the edge, which is where Samson lived most of his life, right on the edge. And people often want to know, what's the line between right and wrong? What's the line of sin here? shared before in doing youth ministry for years, when I would talk about every couple of years we would do a a series on sex in the Bible, and what's appropriate, and and, and what's godly, and, and abstinence, and waiting for marriage, and all that the Bible teaches. And in talking about that, every single time without fail, there were teenagers who asked, okay, but how far can I go? It's the wrong question. You see, Jesus put it the exact opposite. Instead of how close can you get, Jesus said, why don't you think about how far away you can get? That's why in the Nazarite vow that God told, told Samson, don't eat grapes. Well, why not eat grapes? Well, you're not supposed to get drunk. When was the last time you got drunk from a box of sun-made raisins? I mean, come on. But God's saying, don't even go near it. You stay as far away as possible. Don't even re- eat something that is related to a grape, which is related to wine, which is related to drunkenness. Don't even go there. Just stay away. See how far you can get from sin as opposed to looking where the line is and standing real close. 
That's quite a drop off there. I'm fine. I'm on this side of the line. But I'm on the border. Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. There's my line. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty. Oh man, Lord. Angry? That's way over there. This is murder and I'm not doing murder. But angry? That's tough. That's over there near Shiloh. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Great, there's my line. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And that's way over there, Shiloh too. So you're saying, i got to be way over here instead of right up again. I'm not sinning when I'm right by the line. And Jesus said, listen, that's the point of the law. The law is to show you where sin is. But once you know where sin is, instead of walking right up next to it, see how far you can get from it. Stay away from the motivating things that take you to that line, that take you to border town. That's where Samson is. He's on the line and he's meeting up here with Delilah. Jesus says, you've heard where the lines are. I now say to you, don't go near them. Avoid them completely. So here's Samson with little Miss Weakener, little Miss Make Feeble. Verse 5 tells us, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him. And see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him and then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of dough that she's offered here. Entice him. See what you can do. See where his power lies. Remember we've talked about this. Samson, they didn't get it. They could not understand how this guy was so strong. Apparently they didn't see him at the gym. Now, apparently his muscles weren't bulging to the point where they would go, well, I mean, he is a pretty strong looking guy. No, they just can't figure him out. I mean, he, he probably looked like, I'm not going to say any names, I'm just getting in trouble, but me. You know, Spencer, no. He just, he's just a normal, probably average guy, and the Philistines are saying, figure it out for us, Delilah. So Delilah, and we don't, by the way, know if she was Philistine. Probably, but we don't know. She may also have been Jewish. But the money attracted and enticed her. So she said to Samson, she's going to do this four times, this is the first one, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. You know, and she bats her eyes. It's an, I mean, she doesn't even pretend or hide what she wants. I want to see how I can tie you up to keep, to keep you from being strong. Tell me how you can be defeated. And so Samson... Samson said to her, hmm, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. He lies to her. He's tricking her. Samson likes to play games. We saw that before when he gave the riddle about the lion and the honey back in chapter 15, 14 and 15 to the wedding party. He, he's a trickster. He's enjoying himself. Now, they're not going to figure out how strong, how I you know, get my strength. I'm going to tell her this. Yeah, get some fresh cords that have not been dried and I will become weak like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried and she bound him with them. <laughs> All right, he's just sitting there. She's like, let me, let me tie you up. Let me try this. Okay. You know, take your best shot. Remember the boastful pride of life. Samson's proud of his strength. He's powerful. He knows it. Tie me up. Go for it. Because I can just tear these things apart. Then it says he snapped the cords. Well, it says she had men lying in wait in an inner room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire. And so his strength was not discovered. 
Well, Samson comes, uh, Delilah comes back at him again. She says, Behold, you've deceived me. <gasps> and told me lies. Shocked. Now please tell me how you may be bound. So he said to her, Hey, okay, alright, alright. If they bind me tight, tightly with new ropes, which have not been used, then I'll be weak and be like any other man. He's going, this is great. He's going to tie me up again and pop, I'm going to be free. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room. They know their way around her house. I don't know what that says about her. But he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Well, then Delilah said to Samson, Up till now you've deceived me and told me lies. I just can't believe this. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, Alright, okay, let's try one more. If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Why is he mentioning his hair? He's getting closer, isn't he? He says, it says, While he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. She fastened it with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled out the pin of the loom and the web. Just got up and he was free once again. He's toying with temptation. He's playing with fire. And he's getting closer and closer and closer to the edge the problem is while Samson is playing games watch this Delilah is wearing him out she's making him tired first couple of times she says hey tell me what the deal is and he he, you know tricks her and she tries to tie him up doesn't work the third time notice what happened in verse 14 while he slept he's tired now he's resting he's off his guard why would he even go to the place of his hair knowing that his hair was part of the Nazarite vow. Why would he even bring that up? Because I submit to you, Samson was involved in the boastful pride of life. And he's thinking, I'm pretty darn strong. I can handle it. Even if she messes with my hair, I'm going to be okay. I'm Samson. I am a tough guy. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, and I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And the Lord says, you want to boast? That's fine, you can boast. That's not a problem at all. Boast in me. You tell people, you know what's awesome about my life? I know Jesus. You know what's great about tomorrow? Tomorrow I'm going to wake up in the hands of the Lord. Tonight when I go to sleep, I go to sleep with His voice on my heart. I know Jesus Christ. You can tell me all kinds of things. You can impress me with all kinds of things. But I can tell you about Jesus. You know, a lot of Christians will struggle over things like evolution. That, that great debate. The abortion debate. There will be several things that, that we will get into conversations and we'll argue with people about. And the reality is our, our best offense is not to be defensive but to talk about Jesus. And feel free to study up on evolution because it's bunk anyway, but study up on it so that you can answer the questions 
But when it all comes down, it's just going to be another argument. If someone's saying, well, yeah, but the earth evolved from this, that, and the other, and you say, okay, well, maybe you know some things about evolution, I don't, but I do know about Jesus. I can tell you about Jesus. Let me boast on him a little bit. Because he is awesome. Let him who boasts, boast in me, says the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 18 tells us pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly man than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who gives attention to the word will find good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Oh, I don't need that word stuff. I don't need that. I'm good and spiritual on my own. And a humble man says, I need the word. The humble person has no problem when someone says Christianity is a crutch. You know what the humble person says? Right on, because I got a limp. I need a crutch. I accept that full, fully. No problem. Yes, I need Jesus. Yes, I need him for salvation. I can't get there. My, are you kidding? You see my life? I can't get there on my own. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. But the worst pride is spiritual pride. Because spiritual pride, gang, it deceives us at the core. It's not just deceiving us in the flesh or in the, in the way we think, but it deceives our very spirit. Spiritual pride. I'm a Nazarite, Samson would think. I'm strong everywhere, including with my hair. I'm a strong guy. I can handle it. And Samson enters into that place of even spiritual pride. He's so sure of his strength and power, he even deceives himself. And he's wearing down. He's wearing down. Verse 14, while he slept, she took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. He's tired. Reading on, verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Right back at you, sister. (laughs) Amazing. You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words, nag, 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 and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. He was fed up. Again, when it says he was annoyed to death, he was tired of this. Delilah, the one who makes feeble, is weakening Samson. She is wearing him down. He is annoyed, but it's just... All right, I played the game. You want to keep going? All right, let's keep going. So he told her, verse 17, all that was in his heart and said to her, a razor has never come on my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. And the problem with Samson's statement is, again, he still doesn't get it. The power is not in the hair. And the power is not in the Nazarite vow. The power is is in the one to whom the vow was made. The power is in the Spirit of God, who we saw two or three times now in his life, came upon Samson mightily. That's where the power is. It's not even in his hair. Samson could have said, should have said, I'll tell you the truth, Deli. It's a little nickname for her. <laughs> the source of my strength is the spirit of the living God and my commitment is in Him. Had Samson said that, what could the Philistines have done? Nothing. How do you fight God? The source of your strength is in the power of God and you're committed to Him? Well, great. How do we fight that? 
There's something to this kind of confession. No Philistine could have taken that away. Gang, listen to me. This is important for us as Christians. The confession of your faith is hard for the enemy to fight. Sometimes we want to go head to head with the enemy. When all we have to do is confess our faith in Jesus Christ. All we have to truly do to make the enemy flee is say, Jesus is my Lord and my faith is in Him. And you have no power here. Satan, you have no power here, minions of the evil one, because I believe in Jesus. And His power is upon me. It stuns the enemy just to make that confession. It frightens him. It forces retreat. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Been under attack lately? Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is the promise of the word of God. The devil will run away scared. And all you have to have in the arsenal is the sword of the Spirit and faith in the living God. It's that easy. Romans 10 verse 9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. And that's not just a verse for the newbie. It's not just a verse for someone just coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It is a verse for every one of us who have lived our lives or are living our lives in Jesus. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved both eternally and also in the moment that you need saving. Paul says, for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And what's great about righteousness and salvation is you can't find them in the strength of Gaza. You can only find them in the rest of Shiloh. The Lord Jesus. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many, uh, in many witnesses. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. How do you hold fast to a confession? Keep saying it. Let me invite you to do something. When On Sundays, we go through the, the message time and, and at the end, 99% of the time I offer an opportunity for people to pray a prayer of faith and give their lives to the Lord. When I pray that prayer, I'm not praying it for them. I pray that someone who's making that decision is praying it to the Lord, but I'm praying it for me. When I say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm saying it again for me. I am reconfessing my belief in Jesus. And I have found, gang, the more I confess that belief, the stronger that belief gets. And so we confess. We confess with the mouth and believe in the heart. And hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. But Samson's confession is not in the Lord, it's in his hair. It's my hair that makes me strong. And so I believe the Lord at that point said, Alright, that's as far as your faith's going to go. We'll let it rest right there. Samson, the strength's in your hair. Now you may wonder again why Samson would say anything about his hair at all, but once again it's spiritual pride. And he has walked his life out to get to this point. Remember he started out in the vineyard spending time there and nothing happened. He's a Nazarite walking around in a vineyard. He's not supposed to go near grace but nothing happened when he did. He didn't lose any strength. Next thing in his life he tears apart a lion, rips it to shreds, goes back and reaches into the carcass to pull some honey out touching a dead thing, violating now again and definitely his Nazarite vow and nothing happened. He was fine. Strength didn't leave him. 
And I really believe this, and it could just be me, but I think Samson here with Delilah is taking a calculated risk. I think what Samson is doing is saying, even if she tries to cut my hair, I touched a dead thing and it didn't make me weak. Walked around in a vineyard, didn't make me weak. So if she cuts my hair off, I'm still Samson. Buzz away. I'm still strong. And my friends, that is spiritual pride. I can take anything the devil throws at me. I'm strong. Bring it on. Go ahead. We dabble with sin. We walk the line. Often without immediate repercussions. Without immediate fallout. We go, oh! Yeah, I'm walking right by the cliff, but i got good balance. This is the, I can do this. See, I'm not going down there. I'm just walking near it. And I'm strong. And I'm good. And I can do that. And we start to think it's not problematic for me. And so Samson, he got away with the vineyard, got away with the dead lion, and he's thinking, I'll probably get away with the hair thing too, because I'm strong. And the Bible tells us, Galatians 6, verse 7, Good evening, Annie. The Bible tells us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. But the thing is, and pay attention to this, what we sow doesn't always crop up until the later in the season. It's not an immediate thing. Oftentimes the sin that I sow... There's no immediate consequence and I really start to believe I got away with it. Not a big problem. I'm going to reap it. I will reap it later. It will crop up. So Samson finally, finally he reaps. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in her heart or in his heart she sent and called to the lords of the Philistines saying come up at once more for he has told me all that's in his heart and then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands so they're believing her this time okay we got him we got him they come up with the money and verse 19 look at this she made him sleep on her knees didn't sleep at all the first two times the third time it was while he slept he kind of drifted off to sleep himself and now she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair and she began to afflict him and his strength his strength left him interesting phraseology she made him sleep she entices him she weakens him he toys with her and the first couple times doesn't sleep at all the third time she tries to undermine him while he slept and now she makes him sleep and I cannot help but feel this progression is meaningful in the story of Samson there are two possible spiritual applications here for us either Samson is getting lazy and he's letting down his guard which is why he's finally lying down and going to sleep or he's truly exhausted exhausted from what? the constant nagging the constant picking of the one who makes feeble of Delilah whichever is true they're both spiritually damning and damaging for us if I am spiritually lackadaisical if I am spiritually lazy and I start to just let my guard down I don't need to be in the word and I don't really need to worship but once or twice a month and I don't really need you know, fellowship with all that. I've got a couple of friends who I hang with that are, that are I don't really need to be around Christians so much and, and I start to relax and just get lazy with my faith. Faith, I'm in danger. And this is possibly where Samson is. Of course he is down there he's in the Valley of Sora and he's been running around in Philistine land so he's getting lazy. That's possible that it was laziness that was the problem. But I think it's also possible that he was exhausted by this nagging, this constant nagging of the enemy. And listen to me, and this is about as practical as it gets. When I'm tired, physically tired, I am more susceptible to sin. You notice that? When you're tired, 
You're more easily depressed or discouraged. When you're tired, physically tired, you've been going 90 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour all week long, you get to the end of the week, and man, you're just wiped out. It's like, oh. And the, the devil starts to accuse. You know, you're not accomplishing the things that you thought you could. You know, you're not as good as you thought you were. You know, you're just, you're just kind of a lousy person like anybody. There's nothing special about you, and you're tired. You don't have any offenses. You're just like, eh, I know, I know. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. When I'm tired, I'm more susceptible to sin. Practical note, when you're tired, go to bed. Rick, you mean something spiritual by that? No, I mean go to bed. Tuck in, hit the pillow, go to sleep. It is amazing how a night of rest in the Lord, when you wake up in the morning, how you begin to see things more clearly, more the way He would like you to see them. That's why God wants you to start the day with Him. You wake up and you're fresh and you're ready and you can really hear. But man, you know, trying to pray when you're lying there in bed, how easy that is. Father, I just want to thank you for the... Lord, I really want to spend some time with you now. I know it's been a while. And I just... When I'm tired, I'm susceptible to sin. And remember, Delilah means to make weak or to make feeble. So how do I avoid the spiritual lackadaisicalness or this laziness? Or how do I avoid spiritual exhaustion? Two very simple things. We've gone over and over and over these. I'm going to say them again. Consistency in the Word and constancy in prayer. You want to stay stay strong in the battle. You want to stay, stay lifted up and strengthened, not by your own strength, which comes from Gaza, but by the strength of Jesus Christ that comes directly out of the heart of the tabernacle in Shiloh. You want that kind of strength? Consistency in the Word. Constancy in prayer. And He will build you up. And He will make you strong. And by the way, when you boast, it's going to be in the Lord. Consistency in the Word. Psalm 119.25 My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to Your Word. I have told of my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. By the way, that's why Torah is so important to study and meditate on because it's not just law, it's wonders. Parting of the Red Sea. Wow. Cool. Manna on the ground. Awesome. Fire at night and cloud by day. The creation of the world. The wonders. It's hard to read that stuff and not be impressed. God wants us to be impressed. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119.29, Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your Torah. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. You want a bigger heart for more of what the Lord has for you? Consistency in the Word. I love this verse, Revelation 3.8. Speaking of the church of the last days. This church. Not this church, the bridge. I'm talking about this church alive and well on planet Earth right now. Church of the last days. This is spoken, I believe, directly to us. Jesus says, Revelation 3.8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. I like that. Let's walk through that door. But he goes on and he says, because you have little strength. You've heard the Revelation study. We spent some time on this one. You have little strength. Sometimes I feel like that. God, I am a man of little strength. 
I don't have what I, I can't do what the missionaries are doing, you know, traipsing all over the world saving people. And I, I can't you know, I'm not one of these guys who, who can go up and, and lead these fifteen billion member churches, you know, and I, I'm in a barn on North Whidbey, I got little strength. And the Lord says, Because you have little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's because of this that I open wide the door. Because of this, you have a door you can walk through. Because I know you have little strength, but you've kept my word. You have kept my word. Consistency in the word. Constancy in prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, Pray without ceasing. Which, to my mind, makes it great to fall asleep praying. Because you're still praying at the end of the day. And you wake up praying. And you pray through the day. And then as you're nodding off, the last... I loved when my kids were little... And I would go in and tell them stories and talk to them and we'd pray together. I loved when they fell asleep while we were talking. It was precious to me. Because the last thing they did before they nodded off was talk to their dad. And I believe the same is true of the Lord. He loves when we're talking to Him and we fall asleep because the last person we're talking to is Him. That's a good thing. Pray without ceasing. By the way, Samson was asleep on Delilah's knees. How much better would it have been if he had been awake on his own knees? In prayer. Consistency in the word. Constancy in prayer. Now read on. Verse 20 tells us. Well then she said to the Philistines. Remember she afflicted him. His strength left him. Seven locks of the hair cut off. And she said. The Philistines are upon you Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said. I will go out as at other times. And shake myself free. Did he know his hair was gone? I think he probably did. But in his arrogance, he said, no problem. I'll just shake myself out of this like I have every time because nothing's stuck to me so far. And it tells us he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. We touched on this last week. We touched on it Sunday, but I, I have to pause and touch on it again. The tragic loss of the Spirit of God. The quenching of the very strength that sustained Samson is now gone, but it, it begs the question... And it's Danny's question, and I told you I would get back to you on it. Here we go. This is an important one, gang. Can I lose the Holy Spirit once He resides in me? Talk about this a little bit on Sunday. Let's go further with this. Can I lose the Holy Spirit God pours out into my life? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter says in in Acts 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know that every believer receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with them in the moment that they make their faith in Jesus. And you want absolute assurance of that? Get baptized because that shores it up as far as Peter was concerned. And then there is also the filling of the Holy Spirit. We prayed about that last week. We've talked about that a lot lately. What Jesus called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is also part of of what the Lord is willing and and can do to give us more spiritual power to serve and to witness. Can I lose Him? Once He's here, can I lose Him? 2 Corinthians 1.21 and 22 says, He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. A pledge to what? Well, a pledge to the fact that we're saved. Spirit's with me. God looks at me and He sees the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I'm saved. I've got the seal, the pledge, right here on me. Ephesians 4.30, though, says, Do not grieve 
the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I've been sealed by the Spirit for that day when I am fully redeemed, however I can grieve Him. I can make the Holy Spirit sorrowful. Still right here, I can grieve Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Not only can I grieve the Spirit, I can quench the Spirit. In other words, I can make the power of the Holy Spirit given to me by God ineffectual in my life. I can make decisions that will shut down that Holy Spirit power. Yeah, but good, Rick, but can I lose the Holy Spirit? If I can go a couple of days with him shut down, don't be thinking like that. Can I lose him? The Hebrew writer, who I think was Paul, also writes the following. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 he says for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame I don't like that verse I am much happier with the verse that says in John chapter 10 no one can snatch you out of my hand. I like that one. I like the one that accompanies it. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. I'm tight. I'm held. I'm with the Lord. I can't be taken. I cannot lose my salvation. Once saved, always saved. That's my cry. That's my plea. That's my belief. And then I read the Hebrew writer saying hey yeah but if you've been there and then you fall away you can't be renewed again. And I step back and I say, what about grace? This is a difficult verse, but I like to couple it with another difficult verse to make it even more difficult, and then we'll try and make some sense out of it. Turn your Bibles over to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Verse 20. tells us Jesus came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. It's very cool. People are really jazzed about Jesus. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. He's gone mad. Jesus is nuts. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself. And he began speaking to them in parables. And he said, how can Satan cast out Satan? (laughs) It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're saying that by the power of Satan I'm casting out demons. Why would he do that? And how can he do that? It doesn't make any sense. He said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I like the, the Seinfeld episode where... I don't know how many of you watch Seinfeld, but where George Costanza, one of the characters in that, he's engaged, and he has engaged George, but then he also hangs out with his friend Jerry, and that's independent George. And he wants to keep the two separate. And he says, you're killing independent George, because Jerry invited his fiancée over, and so now they're all in the same place, and he's like, a George divided against himself cannot stand. Anyway. Pretty funny. So, 
he says this though the Lord says it's about Satan he says the kingdom divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand but he is finished makes sense great I'm with you Lord no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house Truly I say to you, and this is where we take a left turn, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's good news. But, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now I read that verse the first time many years ago, and it scared me to death. What if I slip and say something that's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have I lost it right there? Am I done? Is that history? I'm out? Don't even try after that? Jesus is laying some very heavy groundwork here. And it's in response, and listen to this, it's important, the context here. It's in response to what these scribes are saying to him. They're saying, you, Jesus Christ, are a devil. You are of Satan. And Jesus says, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. The word there that says guilty of an eternal sin, it's enokos in the Greek, and it means in the grasp. If you say Jesus is not Jesus, if you proclaim with that kind of adamant defiance, Jesus is not Lord, you are in the grasp of eternal punishment. So what about a Christian who lives for the Lord and loves the Lord and some tragedy happened in their life. Maybe their their wife was killed or or a husband was lost or a child was lost and they they just kind of lose it for a time and they walk away from the Lord. Can't they come back? I mean, they've tasted of of the Holy Spirit and the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and they've fallen away and they can't be renewed to repentance. That's not who it's talking about here. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not slipping and saying, Oh my... The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit gang is an adamant defiance of who God is. That's the context. In fact, look at verse 30. He tells them this. He says this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit who was in Jesus at the time. They were saying the very power of the Holy Spirit Jesus was using to do miracles was of Satan. And Jesus says, don't go there. People are going to blaspheme the Son of Man, Jesus, in the flesh. His own disciples were going to do it just a a little while after this. Peter was going to say, I don't know the guy. That's going to be forgiven, he says. But someone who says, God is not God, and who adamantly and defiantly says, I will have nothing to do with him, that person cannot be saved. Seems like an awful firm and, and difficult line you're drawing there, Rick. I didn't draw it, first of all. But secondly, gang, we're talking about persistent, willful, rebellious unbelief. Someone who has said, I will not accept that Jesus is Lord. Because, and here's the reason, when a person gets to that point, they are going to slap away the very hand that is trying to save them, and they can't be saved. That's the issue. You're on a ship that's going down in the middle of the ocean, and someone throws you one of those little round lifesavers, and you bat it away. No, I don't want that. You are going to drown. They reach out a hand to you and you slap it away. No, I don't want your help. I don't need you. I'm a good swimmer. 
I'm a good person. I don't need that. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because you are slapping away the very one through whom pardon comes. That's why it's the unpardonable sin. That's why it's unforgivable. Does that make sense, Danny? All right. And that's what's going on here. Where Jesus is talking to these guys. Can I lose the Spirit once He resides in me? Listen. I've said this before. You cannot lose your salvation. But you can leave your salvation. There is nothing that anyone outside of you can do to cause you to lose that security that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But He is not going to drag anybody kicking and screaming into heaven. He's not going to force you into the gates. He's not going to say, Come on, I'm going to make you go. I don't want to go. I'm going to make you go. It's not how God works. You don't want to go? It's called free will and it happened back in Genesis chapter 3 and God has honored it ever since. The Holy Spirit is our seal of salvation. The Holy Spirit is the promise of Jesus Christ abiding within us. And so if I reject Him and say I want nothing to do with Him, I'm rejecting the only hope I have of being saved. Well, in Samson's case, and in other Old Testament examples, the Spirit came and went. The Lord would give His Spirit with power to a man, to a woman, but He also had the right and reserved the right to remove His Spirit. In New Testament times, in the age of the church, the age of grace in which we live, the Lord pours His Spirit out upon people, and the only way we can lose the Spirit is to drive Him away and say we want nothing to do with Him. We're not talking about sin, and we're not talking about falling. We're not talking about those stupid, fleshly, carnal, rebellious acts that we have all committed and probably will all commit again. We're talking about a refusal to return to the one who can save us. And that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, back in chapter 16, let's finish this up. Verse 21, the Philistines then seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza, back down to Strongtown, Stronghold, and they bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. There's a whole sermon right on that verse. <laughs> Sin will blind you, it will bind you, and it will grind you. And you can make your own sermon for that sometime if you'd like to. I'm not going to do it on Sunday. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved. Verse 23, Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement for staying away from sin, for saying no to sin, because it doesn't just involve you. And it doesn't just involve and infect people around you in your lives. Sin, gang, sin provides the enemies of God a reason to rejoice. Which is what we see happening right here. The enemies of God, the Philistines, are rejoicing in their God, Dagon, because of the sin of Samson, which landed him in their grasp. And when we sin, we're provide, it's kind of like, like drug money on the street. And when someone buys drugs on the street, it's said that much of that money makes its way into the hands of terrorism. So if you buy drugs, you're supporting terrorism. If we sin, we are supporting the praise and worship of the enemy. We're given the enemy cause to rejoice. And we don't want to do that. 
And the Philistines are having a field day here. They're praising their God, Dagon, verse 25. And so it happened when they were in high spirits that they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. That was a mistake. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof, looking on, looking down into this kind of an open courtyard area, looking down into this temple while Samson was amusing them. In verse 28... And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And we talked about this Sunday. The Lord honors this prayer. Samson calls out for the first time in his life that we have recorded, he calls out the actual name of God, the Lord, Yahweh. He says it for the first time. Samson cries out, Lord, remember me, which is a great thing to pray to the Lord because he always remembers you. 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 we see Hannah crying out to the Lord remember me in my barrenness that I might have a son I'll dedicate him to you and the Lord remembers her the thief on the cross Luke 23 24 remember me Jesus when you come into your kingdom and he remembers him the Bible tells us in Isaiah 49 can a woman forget the child that she's nursing it's ridiculous of course not But even these may sometimes forget. I will never forget you. Samson cries out, Remember me! And then he shouts out down in verse 30, Let me die with the enemy. Three things in his prayer. He calls out the name of the Lord. He calls out, Remember me. And finally he says, Let me die with the enemy. Verse 29, He grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them. The one on his right hand and the one on his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. And then his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. By the way, Manoah also means rest. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. I want to tell you one more thing. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll kind of finish here in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have watched Samson's brilliant lust of the flesh and his life directing lust of the eyes. And we have seen now Samson's boastful pride of life and all three of these things took him down and down and down to the very point of his death. In those last moments, Samson has redemption, which is wonderful. While he's in the prison and he's grinding out and he's blind, something's going on. The hair's growing, but I believe the heart was growing as well. He was humiliated. He was in that place where there was no strength. It was from his weakness that he was made strong. And finally realized who the Lord was. And called out to him. And the Lord gave him the answer to his prayer, Let me die with the enemy. And so he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, in this chapter, talks about his ministry. Just listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy... We do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And he says, For we do not preach ourselves, this is key, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts and to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Some of your Bibles say jars of clay. So that the surpassing greatness and the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always, and listen to this, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And gang, listen, Paul was delivered over to death several times. He was stoned and they thought he was dead. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten with the lash numerous times. He was handed over to death. But I believe there's more to this verse simply than the physical challenge of Paul's life. He says again, we live constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Dying to self is key to killing off the boastful pride of life. Dying to self. And while you may not go to work tomorrow and be in threat of of dying physically because of your faith in Jesus, you can still die to self every day. Dying to self, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, Paul says, death works in us, but life in you. Having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, although the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, oh, I love this verse, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Dying to self. Dying to self. It was the last words of Samson, let me die with the enemy. Kill the enemy within. Let me die to self. And that means accepting a humble place in your relationships. That means not always getting what you want. That means agape love. What a picture of dying to self. I'm going to love you even if you hate me. I'm going to love you even if you're a jerk to me. I'm going to continue to love you. Because I am called to die to myself. As opposed to elevating myself and defending myself and proving myself, I am to die to myself. Did you know that from the moment we are born, our bodies start to die? I mean, there's a positive thought for you. 
a little tiny baby. Even while our bodies grow in maturity to adulthood, skin cells are falling off at a rate to 30 to 40,000 per minute. In the time that we have been sitting here tonight, each one of you have dropped on this floor 30 to 40,000 skin cells per minute. Did you know 85 to 90% of the dust we see are skin cells? It's just really nasty. I remember as a kid when the light would come in the window of my bedroom and you see all the pretty little floaty dust. And, oh, that's kind of cool. It's skin. It's my death in the air all around me. And that's the reality. We are dying daily. Our blood cells are dying, being replaced by new cells. And hair follicles are shriveling up. No comments. Fingernails and toenails, though they grow, they get to a certain point and they just die. You have a little dead toenail thing or fingernail hanging off there. It's like, i got to get rid of that thing. It's nasty. And isn't it interesting that where the enemy hits us is trying to prolong life and cover up death. Now that looks nice. You know, fingernail polish, covering up the death that is on the edge of your hand. Exfoliating to cover the death that's falling off of your body. And creams and lotions and all these things. And I know I've gone off on this before, but here's the deal. At a certain point, we have to recognize we're dying. Every one of us. Hallelujah. It's happening to you. We are all dying in the flesh. Paul says, I'm dying in the spirit. I'm killing off. I'm praying the Lord caused my spirit to die so that I may be alive in Him. He says in Galatians 2.20, No longer is it me who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. He is completely reworking. He is taking over. So in that moment when He says, Come up here! And He will. I'm going to go. And I'm going to be glorified. One last verse. I'll just read this to you. 2 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. Thank you. Good call. That was a test. We passed. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, which means in New Jerusalem, no more skin cells. No more dust. Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye that the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. By the way, I heard a guy say this. Some of you here heard this guy say this. I heard a guy refer to the rapture of the church as that rapture thing and it just made my toes curl up. I don't know about that rapture thing, that rapture thing. Are you talking about the blessed hope? You're talking about the thing that I get more excited about than anything else in my life? The, the thought that I'm going to be there? I'm going to be with him? Well, I'm sorry, dude, but you're off a little bit. It's not that rapture thing. It's the hope of my entire life. He says this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. I want that immortality. He says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then what will, then will come about the saying that death is swallowed up in victory. Samson died in victory. Because Samson died in faith. In that moment, for all the sin and carnality of his life, in that moment, Samson cried out to the Lord and gave his life to the use of the Lord. And he died in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for revealing to us where the strength comes from. For showing us, Father, the danger, the subtlety of sin, the Delilahs who attempt to make feeble, who make us tired and cause us to be weary in our faith. Father, I pray that you will build up this fellowship, that you will build us up in the constancy of the word, consistency in prayer, Father, always bringing it to you. And Father, I pray you will teach us what it means to position ourselves to die. That we might live every day dying to self, but alive in Christ Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we pray tonight. Amen.